All right, so we're here with Tom Place from Outbound Lighting, co-owner, Outbound Lighting, um, engineer. And again, correct me if I say anything that's wrong. Um, Dude, where's my NAR podcast? And we're going to just chat and like we always do, talk about Tom's, you know, riding journey, um, his career journey, because it's really cool. It has to do with mountain biking. He's in the industry and Outbound has some amazing lights. I'm an owner. And uh, Tom, welcome. Thank you for thank you for jumping on and, and taking the time. I kind of have a cool story of how this came about and i'll tell that but what, what's going on man no just hanging out this is uh well not just hanging out. it's been a long couple months and peak season for us this is super busy season but uh it's nice to take a break for a little bit and just shoot the shit. nice nice so the story of how you know Tom came to be a guest is basically, um, I, like I said, I have the downhill Evo package. I love it. It's awesome. Can't speak enough about it. Um, anyways. Um, and again, I have no affiliation with outbound. I just f- love your product. So if I talk I, like I'm I a salesman, that. I can confirm that because we have no sponsorships yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. So, um, if I talk about it and I sound like a salesman is just out of pure love for the product. Um, so I had like this little issue with my, with my mount and I sent customer service an email or whatever it was through the website. And it was like within three hours, I think, or two hours, not even, it was, it was same day within a couple hours. I was like, Oh shit. Like I got an email back and I was looking at it. It was from like literally from Tom and title, you know, co-owner. I forget the exact title. And I was like, holy shit, this dude like emailed me direct. This is awesome. And I I was really impressed by that. And then um, went back and forth. He was like, dude, we're going to send you the second version of the mount. All good. I got it within like, I think it was within within a week. And I think like a month or two went by and I was like, I'm going to email him and see if like, maybe he wants to be on the podcast and here we are. Um, took some back nice. and forth over the last month or so you've been super busy. We've been super busy. So. Yeah. Um, I, how, when did you start riding? When did I start riding? Um, I feel like I keep, I have always say like 10 years ago, um, but it was something around there like 2010 ish. Um, I got started in um, a job that I was doing. It was my first job out of college, but I like moved to the West Coast for to work remotely for a year, and then back to North Carolina. And um, I wasn't playing basketball anymore, and I just hated running. I did cross country in high school and stuff, and just hated it. And eventually, got suckered into mountain biking with one of my friends, and um, it was pretty awesome even though like our first ride was just, you know, four service roads and pretty easy tame stuff. But I remember very distinctly the first like real single track ride we went on. There was just a slope, like this little mound that was maybe four feet tall, something like that. Um, but it was, you know, pretty steep going up it. And I stopped and looked at it and was like, who the f- can ride up this? Like, this is, this is impossible. And my buddy just like carries some momentum and just goes Boop, like up it like it's nothing. Like, oh, oh, I'm not good at this. Cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I started riding more with him and uh, I got a, a single speed Surly Karate Monkey, my first real mountain bike. Um, 
and I uh, started to try to get better and um, realized that like normally like I pick up sports pretty quickly. I tend to be like above average athlete um, with not, not if it's golf or volleyball, I'm fucking terrible at those, but <laughs> mountain biking was like the only sport where I didn't hit a plateau. Like I'm a decent basketball player, but I didn't play in college. Like I'm not that good. And I hey, hit this plateau where I'm just not going to get any better at that sport. Same with running and everything else. And mountain biking was the only one where I felt like, yeah, I might not be a pro, but I feel like I'm always learning something and always getting better. And even still now, you know, a decade later, it's, it's still that way. I still go hit trails and stuff that I've never ridden before and ride behind people who can, you know, show me how to do it properly. And I learn something. So it's, it's stuck because of that, because it hasn't gotten boring at all. Even just riding, you know, the same trail over and over. I don't get bored with that the same way I do running, you know, because the skills aspect is so much more important. So yeah, that's how I got into it. Nice. Uh, um, so I, I totally agree with that. It's, you know, I'm with most sports. I've just been like, all right, like I've gotten halfway decent. I like to say I'm like moderately good at just about everything except ice skating. I, I, I'm absolutely <laughs> terrible at that. Um, just can't get it, but you're in the Northeast. You should be a hockey player. I know everyone is up here. Um, I just, I can't do it. Um, I'm not afraid to say it. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. Um, but with mountain biking, just like you said, I've, I've taken some lessons with this dude. He was actually our last, last guest and just like minor things. It's just, my progression has gone through the roof. Um, just basic things like attack position, um, cornering drills and stuff like that. And like you said, every time I ride, it's different. I ride my local trails and I'll find something new or a better line. And like, I'm just reiterating everything you said, but it, it's awesome. And you're from originally from North Carolina. So that's where you started mountain biking. Yep. Yeah. Um, lived in Raleigh, which is center of the state in the Piedmont. There's, there's not a lot of elevation there. So all of our local trails just go up the hill, down the hill, up the hill, down the hill. It's, you know, 150, 200 feet of elevation max, bottom to top. Um, but we're, I was three and a half, four hours away from Pisgah on Western North Carolina. And Pisgah is fucking gnarly and awesome. And uh, so that's where once I, once I developed enough skills to actually go right out there and enjoy it and not just be miserable, um, we would go down there, you know, my buddies and I would go down there every other weekend, basically all year round. And that's eventually why I got a van um, when I needed a new car is I just got a used van and built it out because every weekend we were like hammock camping in the woods and stuff uh, just to get an extra day of riding in. And it's like, this kind of sucks. I just want to pull over and park and sleep where it's not raining. Um, and uh, so most of my, like, uh, I guess, mountain bike upbringing was Western North Carolina trails, which are all pretty raw and, um, you know, there's, there's no sculpted features. There's no berms and jumps. Like there, everything is multi-use. So it has to be, um, you can't have user group specific features is what the forest service decreed for, for many, many years. And ah. so, so in order to build, that like, one liner in, in like the bylaw. Yep. Well, and they were pretty rigid about it where if you like a tree falls on the trail and, um, you can, you can, cut like a little step through like rollovers into a, like a log pile. But if you build a kicker 
off of that into like a little hip jump or something, they'll make you take it out or block it off. Like it's, it was crazy. Uh, so what ended up happening is all the trails are just super raw and chunky. So they just beat the hell out of you. And they weren't like, I didn't learn how to corner at all in Pisgah. It was all about just smashing through garbage all the time. So I'm very good in a straight line over rough stuff. And, <laughs> um, so then when I moved out here, so I live in Olympia, Washington now, and I just got up here uh, six months ago or so. And, um, you know, there's, there's this local race series called the, the free for all. That's basically just a bring whatever bike you want, get to the top, however you want, take as many laps as you want. Um, kind of like locals enduro race. Um, anybody can show up and you just, you know, take your best times and call it good. So people are riding e-bikes, people are shuttling, you know, people are taking four laps in the same trail and it's great. Cause it's just like this, this fun atmosphere. And I learned very quickly. I was reminded that that weekend very quickly when I first got here, what, my skills are and it's not these trails because <laughs> there was like the first weekend uh first week there was two trails one was this like janky ass moto trail with just uh roots and holes and multiple lines everywhere and one is just berms and tabletops and and uh, little doubles and stuff and uh out of out of like 30 guys i was uh fourth in the the janky stage and i was 28th in the, the jumpy Burmese state because these guys are hitting berms in ways that I never thought was physically possible. Cause I just don't know how to run. I don't know how to ride this stuff. So it's like built features specifically for bikes. And so I don't commit as much as all these locals do. And when I start following them, I'm like, wow, I still have a lot to learn here. It's awesome. Cause I can see them hit a corner, really lean into it and see how much grip they have coming out and say, Oh, I need to lean more. I need to commit more to this corner and I'm going to get a lot more out of it. I just don't trust it because it's, it's so unfamiliar to me. So yep. it's been, it's been pretty cool going from one rainforest to another and having the trails be so mind blowingly different that I feel like I'm you know, not starting over, but I got a whole new set of skills to learn. It's, it's really fun. That's awesome. I mean, um, up here, I I'd say, it's rocks and roots, right? North New England, we're we're rocks yeah. and roots. Um, you can get some pretty good elevation, like elevation gain up and down. <clears throat> um, we do have a couple good downhill parks locally, well, fairly locally. Um, but yeah, same thing. You know, big rocks, roots, jank, New England jank. That's yeah. that's what we're riding mostly. Yeah, I think you guys got a little bit more rock than Pisgah does, but it's similarly. Uh, rough up there there's not a lot of smooth trails right no um <laughs> not really at all um <clears throat> you can go down like cape cod and i'm in massachusetts so i kind of talk about massachusetts um cape cod is a little bit smoother sandier um not as much rocks barely any rocks in some spots but i'm like right in southeastern massachusetts and there's some spots where literally it's just rock like you're you know yeah. woolers and just just nah gnarly rocks everywhere um yeah. there's actually a sick spot right in boston that people kind of been developing it's literally right in boston and it's really? some of the techiest shit in like our state it, it's insane oh, wow. and you would never guess it's right in boston which is which is pretty cool yeah i mean that town is not known for mountain biking or big mountains uh to begin with but that 
mean, that's the issue with like living in the big cities that you normally don't have stuff like that. Like, you know, I was living in, um, in Scottsdale the past three years and like the Phoenix Valley, Phoenix is what, six, seven million people in the greater like Valley area and 20 minutes in any direction, no matter where you live, there's, there's mountain biking and there's mountains in the middle of town. There's South mountain, there's in the Bells, there's <laughs> in like, Everywhere you, there's so much mountain biking there. It's crazy. I kind of got spoiled by that. Now having to, you know, drive to trailheads, whereas before we just pedal from anywhere and we could get to trails. And it's, uh, it's pretty nice. I'm, I'm, I'm super lucky. There's, there's stuff all over the place. And we, two years ago, moved from like in town in Boston to a suburb called Milton. And that's actually when I really, like picked back, picked up on mountain biking. I rode when I was a teenager and stuff, life happened, family, all of that stuff. And just got, was totally engrossed in all that, which I still am, but like now I get to have a hobby. Um, (laughs) but I'm 10 minutes through mostly trails. Like there's, you know, I go down a street, I link up on like a public, like a town trail, go around a pond and then I hit another street and then I'm at another trail. And then I'm in like blue Hills reservation which is massive. There's, you know, enduro runs, ton of cross country stuff, double track, single track on the other side of it. So I'm, I'm like, I count my blessings. I'm, I'm really lucky to be able to basically ride um, to the trailhead. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, man. Yeah. It sounds like you got a pretty good community around there. Yeah. Yeah. Ton of riders. Um, I'm involved in, um, Southeastern Mass, uh, New England Mountain Biking Association. I don't know if you've ever heard of NEMBA, but um, there's like 8,000 members throughout New England. Um, trail work, advocacy for open space, um, ton of events. And it's pretty cool. It's a, I think nice. I'm 90% sure they were the first organized mountain biking um, association in, in the country. Wow. 30-something years ago. Yeah. I mean, that'd be, that'd be about right timing wise. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about bikes, riding, whatever, like I'm looking at you here on this video and I see like 27 bikes behind you. Um, that's all you, those are all yours. There's six, I think realistically. Uh, no, my, uh, uh, girlfriend and I share garage space. Um, cause I, work on all the bikes because I'd like to keep very particular care of them. Um, but four of those six, actually we have seven, but there's a road bike behind me. You can't see cause it's actually covered in towels and stuff. It's like a towel hanger. Did you hide that because this is a mountain biking podcast? Oh no, I'd, I'd gladly show you, but it's uh, like, I've got a, a jacket hanging on it right now to dry <laughs> because we basically never use it. Um, we're trying, she was actually going to sell it before we moved up here and then, we couldn't find anybody. She's like, all right, we'll just bring it with us. But yeah, so we have six mountain bikes between the two of us. Four of them are mine. Um, I'm probably going to sell one of them, this little uh, Kona Process 111, because that was a really good desert bike. I love that in Scottsdale because it was, I didn't need, you know, a big uh, monster truck bike and get away with a short travel bike and still have a good time there. Um, I'll probably get rid of one, but don't worry, we'll replace it with something else. Um, nice what's what's your i mean what's your go-to bike uh i'm sure it varies but for where you're living now yeah um 
So yeah, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be in a position where my, my job actually supports me having multiple bikes. Um, so I try to have a spread of, of different disciplines. So I've got a um, Rocky Mountain Slayer. It's 180, 170, basically just set up as a park bike. Um, so that goes with me to Whistler and Angel Fire and places like that, Retallic. Um, and then uh, the Process 111 was a desert bike, which barely gets used anymore. So that's going to leave. I've got a Reeve Hardtail with a 160 in the front. Um, that bike is really fun for certain things where it's nice just having a hardtail where the rear end just kind of gets kicked around like crazy and does what it wants. So you just focus on putting the front wheel where it needs to go. Um, <laughs> and the front end, you know, it's, it's 160 and it's raked out like 64 degrees. So it's, it's a very stable feeling front end. Um, very familiar compared to my other bikes. So it's, it's pretty fun. And then I've got a uh, Forbidden Druid. I got recently. And so that's, that's my daily driver bike now at 160, 142. Um, put the cascade components rear link in there. And that, anyways, it's a whole nother diatribe, but that, that bike is pretty good because it's enough travel to, to do anything. The geometry is comfortable enough, even on super steep. Shit. Like I'm, I, I took it up to Whistler earlier this year. I managed to escape once the border opened got up there for three days and that's the bike I had. So I brought that bike and, um, it handled the park just fine. I mean, there were some big hit stuff that I probably wouldn't hit anyways, if I had a bigger bike. So I don't feel like the bike was holding me back. <laughs> um, and that thing feels really good, um, through straight chunky stuff. And it corners a lot better than, uh, my bigger, longer, Slayer does, you know, the park bike is good, high speed, straight line, but the, that Druid is pretty awesome for, for almost everything now. So that's, that's my go-to. Nice. That's, that's awesome. I, um, I have two bikes now, actually I have, uh, EX fuel, yeah, 2021 fuel EX, um, all built up it's carbon and that's like 140 140 perfect for around here can handle anything and then um and i i just bought a fat bike so i could ride in the winter so we'll see we'll see how that goes that'll be that'll be new for me yeah <laughs> uh well when you guys get enough snow that gets deep enough that you kind of have to have a fat bike at a certain point otherwise it, it's not fun <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. They do, uh, they do groom at, at a couple of the parks. And so, so that'll be, uh, that'll be new for me this year. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Nice. I threw, um, actually this morning I, I got like the kids ride shotgun, like seat for my daughter. She's, she's five. And I drove to school this morning. It's like, I don't know, two miles round trip. Um, she was pumped. She's like, this is awesome. She's like yelling to kids and shit. <laughs> It was, uh, it was awesome. Hell yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Get them started early. Cause then by the time they're, you know, by the time they're 20, they'll be goddamn professionals. Yep. Out, you know, run circles around us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I'd love to be able to on a Saturday morning be like, Hey, we're going out. We'll, we'll be back in a couple hours. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've seen already with your community there, Mountain biking is not a solo activity, at least in my book. Like it's, this is a group sport and it's a really good bonding opportunity, particularly with your kids. It's freaking awesome. Absolutely. And you know, um, it's more and more apparent that, that like 
I'll just say it like kids nowadays. It, it's just, it's sad. I don't know how old you are. I'm 33. Apparently I'm a millennial. Uh, I, I don't like to admit it, but like uh, I'm in that age range, but I'm at the higher age range where like we grew up without internet until we were like 10 and it was AOL. So you could barely get on anyways. And then like somebody picked up the phone, like who picked up the phone? <laughs> like, <laughs> But we, you know, for my whole childhood, we were outside. Like, um, and I really want to instill that in my daughter where she has that in her life. Um, I I just, it just, there's so much technology now. It's so easy to sit in front of an iPad or a computer or a video game or TV or like whatever it is. And COVID didn't help either. No. Um, But. Well, and that that angle, like the, the whole, the way that COVID has impacted the bike industry is bonkers. It's yeah. like I, so when I was coming into work with, uh, with Matt, he's the founder of Outbound. When I was coming in to work full time with him, I was, we were ready to make that transition. I was going to quit my, you know, high paying engineering job to go pursue entrepreneurship um, back in April, um, you know, March, April timeframe of 2020. And it was right when everything was ramping up and you're like, um, Hey, you want to like pump the brakes and hold off for a little bit just to see how this shakes out. Cause we weren't sure if like every other industry, it was going to tank or, or what. And we saw the opposite very quickly. And, you know, six months later, we're like, all right, well, yeah, this clearly the industry is going to be okay. There's a lot more people getting into the sport, even if it corrects, like there's going to be enough people that got into it that stay that it's not like the bottom's not going to fall out. It's not like, you know, people are selling too many homes and then all of a sudden the market's flooded and, and then there's nothing available. It's like, it's not, it's not the same. So um, we, we, but we had that moment of doubt, like what, what is this going to do to that whole industry? And thankfully it, it's actually pulled people outside a little bit more. And yep. Um, and the number of people I saw that, clearly had never ridden a mountain bike before uh, in, in Arizona when I was there during the pandemic. Like, it, was, um, it was crazy. It, and, and, and we talked about this a little briefly before, before we jumped on and started recording here. But like, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, hate when people get behind the internet and start lobbing comments where there's this anonymous and, you know, a veil of no responsibility. You can just say whatever you want about people. And yeah. Keyboard warriors, you know? Yeah. Just, just put people down and it's like, yeah. Okay. So this guy is out here on a, a hybrid bicycle on a Rocky trail wearing uh, tennis shoes with no helmet. It's not that he's an idiot. It's not that he's a noob, but he doesn't deserve to be doing this. Like it's, he needs, he needs some guidance. He's trying to get into a new sport. He's never tried it. Before. He doesn't know what to do. Yep. He's just trying it. Good on him for giving it a shot. Now let's go like pull him aside and say, all right, here's, here's some things that could help, you know, head protection, maybe start with that. And then we can get into pedals and shoes and all that. Like it's, it's just good to see a lot of people that are trying and getting through that because once you actually get out with people like face to face, it makes a huge difference in the way people interact with each other. It's a lot harder for people to be a jerk to your face as it turns oh, out. Oh yeah. Um, and yeah, and from what I've seen with my interactions with 
I don't know, 99.9% of everyone I've ever ridden with or like interacted with, you know, events, whatever, like everyone's just happy to be on their bikes and riding and happy to be joined by other people, love helping, you know, newer people, whatever it may be. And that's awesome. And yeah, I just haven't seen a sport that's like that, that, that brings people together in the same way. Like there's always exceptions, but you know, a lot of team sports, they, it kind of breeds this contention for everyone that's not on your team. Yeah. That's most people. Almost everyone is not on your team except for a few people. And in mountain biking, you know, there's, there's racing and, and stuff like that. But even that, especially enduro, like it's, it's just different. You see the enduro world series and every event all year round, there's a story about one of the top three pros helping out his direct competitor who's about to knock him off the podium in between stages because he dented his rim and can't get it to hold air. And so they're like, they're helping each other. It's not, it's not this, Oh, fuck that guy. I'm out. I'm going to win now. It's like, well, this is a, this is a, a supportive community and an atmosphere that you don't get with other sports. And that's, that's what he, me coming back to the sport more than anything. I was the skill side of it, like it keeps it interesting when I'm doing it by myself. But the reason that I like, get up every day and want to do this is I get to do it with people that are like that. They have that that supportive atmosphere, and it's just it's great. <laughs> so you you touched a little bit, and I think it's a perfect segue. Um, we're talking about you know your riding and whatnot, and you touched on your engineering background a little bit, and your job and leaving for outbound lighting. So like. In regards to all of that, how awesome is it to take your passion for mountain biking and having, you know, your background in engineering and, and you know, your past in that? And I, I believe you have patents and, and, and everything um, yourself. A couple of things, yeah. <laughs> and combining that to where, like, I mean, realistically, you're working on things to make what you love doing better? Like how, how, how is that? Uh, it is uh, both awesome and terrible. Uh, <laughs> and I, I can explain it's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm an engineer, like that's the way my mind works. That's what I'm good at. There's a lot of things I'm not good at, but I'm, I'm pretty good at that. And that's how I think. And I got into lighting when I got, a, uh, got started working with Cree, um, major LED manufacturer in Durham, North Carolina, and got on a good path there. Found a really good group of, of coworkers that were similar. We actually had this, this core group that had a, a good dark humor side that kept us going when everything was just like, you know, we're just getting beaten over the head to produce and work longer and harder and everything. And we helped support each other because I knew that if I was busting my ass on a Friday night to get something lobbed over to the fence of the next guy, that it's not just going to sit there all weekend. Like he's going to be there waiting for it. So his team's going to carry it through Saturday and it's, you know, 24 seven environment. It was really cool. And it was, it was lighting focused. I loved LEDs and I loved actually making use of it. Cause I actually, I went to graduate school and um, was trying to get a PhD because my dad is, a professor and I felt like I was capable of doing that. And I got a few months into grad school and I was like, this is dumb. I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. I need to get out as quickly as possible. So I, I ended up 
getting out and getting a job before I actually graduated. <laughs> um, and then took me another year to actually defend my, my master's because I just didn't care. Like I, like I had a job, like, what is this? It's just checking a box. Like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like, and the, the reason behind that is because academia is not for me. It serves a very important purpose for all of this. It's the foundation of a lot of the stuff I'm doing, but I like to see the real world reaction to something that you create and, and seeing the benefit, not just the work that goes in. And so Cree was great because I could see, you know, when we, when we run experiments, we collect data, we'd make a change, we'd collect new data. I could see the real impact and then I could see customers with products getting used out in the field. I see our, our LEDs in street lights as we're driving down the street and I'm like, Ooh, I helped design the chip that's inside that LED. And like, that's cool. Um, and so I went into like applications engineering and loved that um, and had an opportunity to go make bike lights with, uh, with industry nine as this like, Hey, let's try this venture. Cause they love like that company. They live to night ride. The owner in particular, Clint is nutty about night riding. And it is, you know, every Tuesday, I'll give you an example. I got hired on, uh, on Monday, first day of work. Tuesday night is night ride night. And usually that's a pretty big shuttle followed by, you know, three to 5,000 feet of descending and then cooking out and drinking in the woods until one, two in the morning. And then the expectation is that if you go out and ride and drink and eat, like you're at work the next day before 8 a.m. to do something different and be entrepreneurial. I needed to do it earlier in my career, not when I'm 55. Um, and so I left this awesome job that I love actually combining all these things to you know make lights for bikes and combine all my my interests it's awesome because i feel like it's if anything what i was meant to do <laughs> um i found this really you know glorious purpose to steal a line from from loki but um it uh it is stressful it is more stressful than any other normal job i've had because um, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, like I'm the one answering every email, phone call, text message, social media posts, whatever. Um, and people behind the wall of anonymity are assholes sometimes. Um, but also it's, it's my, you know, part, my company and my name and reputation tied to it. And it's not just random anonymous customer using my stuff. It's my friends, it's yep. family, it's people that, that I ride with all the time. And so like, I get excited, like, Oh, my, my local night riding crew is now almost all using my lights. But that also makes me nervous because if anything happens at all, like I have to figure out an answer and fix it immediately. And like, I don't want things bad to happen ever. And so I, I get stressed about that. And so now when a customer service email comes in, the reason I'm answering them now is because um, my partner, didn't answer them fast enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, well, we just have very different styles. You know, if he can, if he can answer the question in one sentence, he will. I tend to write novellas to people and spend way too much time doing this, which is why it's a problem because I can't sustain that. But I, I like to give, I, you know, for example, you had a problem with your mouth. I want to make sure that when we fix that problem, you have confidence that it's going to stay fixed. That it's not like, oh, well, this is a flaky product that's just going to, you know, fail in the field again. And I also want to have confidence that when I just 
you know, I'm not just going to send you something new and assume that's going to solve the problem. I want to figure out, oh, you, your mount broke. How did it break? Was it during install? Did you over torque it? Did you have a crash? If you did have a crash, what side did the impact come in on? Did you hit the light at all? Was it just the inertia that caused it to fail? Like all that matters because I want to know if I'm going to send you something, it needs to fix the problem or it needs to be something that wasn't a problem. It's just a fluke instant. And I need to be confident of that on both sides for you and for me. And that is not something that you get with just, you know, uh, somebody you hire to do typical customer service answering questions thing. It's, it's really critical for us to make sure we're making a good product and that everybody's, you know, confident in it. But that kind of shit keeps me up at night. So <laughs> I get stressed out a lot more here than I did at a corporate job where I would leave and, you know, I'd still, I, I'd have emails and stuff, but I wouldn't care so much. Like if a customer email comes in at 11 PM right now and I see it on my phone, sometimes I have to, I don't, well, if I read it and it's a problem and I don't address it immediately. And um, that's, you know, that's small business too, but that's also part of being like made product for the community that I'm heavily involved in. Like I'm using it all the time with all of my friends and that, that carries weight with it. So it's good and bad. Yeah. It makes total sense. Um, uh, I will say that I was, and I think I said this earlier, I was super impressed with your response and the fact that you took the time to write me an email and like, I was already super impressed with, with your lights. I love them. Um, people who don't have outbound, outbound lighting, when I ride with them, they definitely have light envy. I love it. It's like, it's like just strapping a Cadillac right on your rig and people are just like, damn, what is that? And um, I can't say enough good things about it, but the customer service part when you were when you responded and and even now that like i sent you an email and you responded like sure why not i'll be on the podcast like that alone's awesome like it's like super reachable approachable and that really like i will never own another bike like like that's <laughs> you, you did your job well and and you, you know to, to that point this is uh, the customer service side of it is to some extent I'll, I'll be honest about it, a selfish endeavor, right? Like we're not just doing, we're not just, you know, doing crash replacements for free and stuff like that out of the goodness of our heart. It's partially because it helps us sleep at night. And we just want that to be the support we get from all the companies that we buy parts from. But it's, it's also like, it just seems silly not to like, you know, if we make a reliable enough product that, the things aren't failing at a frequent enough rate that we're going out, we're going bankrupt, just replacing parts, then we're going to be fine. And the cost that, that we have for replacement parts is well outweighed by you, for example, or, or some, one of your friends who mentioned outbound to you in the first place, like that reaction, you know, one person has a good positive interaction because we just took care of them and didn't ask questions. And it blows their mind like that. Then they get a couple of their friends to buy. Everybody wins in that scenario, right? Like yep. customers, super happy. That's you guys. And I get more customers as a result and they're all happy. So they get like, it's everybody wins. Um, and so I'm, I'm more than happy to do it that way. And um, I'll say that the, my, my girlfriend is, uh, 
big animal or, you know, she fosters cats and, um, uh, works at a therapy, therapeutic horse farm, uh, weekends and stuff. And she, uh, bought, so she bought this dog bed from Chewy online, just, you know, found Chewy, whatever, just found this dog bed to give her a dog. And it was way too small. And she just emailed and said, Hey, I got the wrong size bed. It's too, it's way smaller than I thought it was going to be. I should have measured. Um, can I just return this and get the larger size bed? You know, it's unused. And um, their, their response to her was, uh, no problem. We're just going to send you the correct size. Um, go take the one you have and donate it to a local dog shelter. And the moment she did, she got that response. She was like, customer for life. Done. Like, yep. You've won me over because you're helping me support the thing that I love. And you're just taking care of me, even though it was my mistake. And, you know, there's some, there's some threshold there where you can't let, you know, the, the bad parts of society, those people take advantage of you, but I'm willing to take that chance. You know, I'm not going to punish 99% of customers because a couple here and there are trying to take advantage of us. And it just, it just seems to like just make the most sense. So in some ways it's selfish business endeavor but it also is, it makes me feel a lot better that people are, are happy with our support, that, that they're stoked on us. And um, so it, it makes it a lot easier to do this job. That's for sure. Cause if I had to spend an extra two hours every day invoicing people for $4 of shipping costs to get a replacement part to them, like, Oh man, it's just so not worth it. It just leaves a sour taste in people's mouths and I got better things to be doing. So I'm, um, yeah, it's it's been been a good way to to manage things for us. Yeah, it's it's definitely working. Um, we again we we kind of chatted for fifteen ish minutes before we hit record. Um, <laughs> but we we were talking about the fact that you know uh, if anybody's in a Facebook group, if you know most of the people who listen to this are in you know the dude wears my NAR Facebook group and like people ask questions, people, you know, answer from experience, which I, th- I think is awesome. Right. It's, yeah. I can go on Google, like me and Tyler, another one of the hosts that's usually on here, he's having technical difficulties tonight, but like we talk about it all the time, like I can go on Google and find a shit ton of answers um, or suggestions or mostly probably ads of somebody being paid to say something's awesome. Right. Yeah. But and that's easy. And, and, you know, you get that one wise ass that, you know, when you ask a question, a group like, Oh, you don't know how to use Google. It's like, no, I, I want like 4,000, you know, the potential for 4,000 people who have experience, ex- actual experience with this to like, let me know what the pros and cons are, what they like, what they don't like, like recommendations. And basically long story long, what I'm getting at is, I see a lot, especially up here this time of year, like it gets dark at four 30. Now the only night riding you're doing, or the only riding you're doing after work is night riding. And I see a, a ton of people asking the question, like what lights, what, what do you recommend? And, and post it in groups. And we talked about this earlier. Everyone has suggestions and like the outbound people, it always comes up in like, at least four or five, six, seven, eight times. Um, and you know, people, you know, post outbound lighting. I always recommend it. Um, and it's cool to see that. And the people who use your products swear by it, like 
they're like, I don't care what anyone says. Like this, this is what you need to get. Um, you know, if, if you're afraid of the cost, don't be, it's well worth every penny. Um, and it's, it's just, it's cool to see. And I, I'm like the combination of me using it. And I now bring in the customer support part of it. I'm like, listen, like these things are awesome. You're not going to get a better light. And God forbid something goes wrong with it. Like you're going to be taken care of. It, and I know from experience. Um, and it, you, you're, you're absolutely right. Like the, for better or for worse, we've created a very vocal customer base <laughs> when they're unhappy, they're very unhappy. And uh, thankfully um, the overall majority, if they're unhappy, then they talk to me and we fix that. Um, but uh, you know, for, for like crowdsourcing feedback, you know, we, we touched on that too. Like the mountain bike industry is particularly fickle with that. You know, if you got a buddy who cracked a, you know, you might have a buddy with a Trek Fuel EX frame like yours who cracked the frame and he might not trust Trek anymore. It's like, okay, but, you know, Trek's like global, like one of the three largest companies in the planet for frames. Like, I'm sure they, it's not a, that that's not like the normal uh, mode of operation. And we shouldn't just write off the entire company because it's the one frame cracking, but that happens all the time because that's the way a lot of mountain bikers operate. And it's, you know, I've used this period. Therefore it's the best. It's, you know, the thing I like about coming in now and not early on in the industry is that you know, like Knight Rider and Light in Motion, they've been around for a long time. They own the market in the US. So people know what to expect from them. And so people who are coming to check us out, like a lot of like the overwhelming majority of them are existing night riding people yep. that have had other products to compare to. So it's not just Oh, I bought outbound. It's the only thing I've ever used. And so it's the best. It's a lot of people who are, are seeing what they know, what they've been used to for years. And now they have something different. And it's, it's great to get that real customer feedback more so to us than, you know, like influencers, you know, we get a lot of requests for um, you know, like supporting race teams and brand ambassadors and stuff like that. And we have, um, we have zero sponsored athletes and we have zero brand ambassadors. Part of that, uh, is because I don't want to spend the money. Um, part of that is also because I just don't think it matters. Like there's a ton of, you know, you know, if you saw Aaron Gwynn running our lights, like, okay, yeah, that, that'd probably get us some more customers. Sure. But like, especially for like the brand ambassador level, like I, I just don't like the feeling of forced content and I would much rather have the product, like get enough people out there to have the product speak for itself. And, you know, we, we ask for reviews on our website, you know, a couple of weeks after people receive the products um, because we want to have, we want to have the full gamut and we get some negative reviews on there. And if you read through them, you'll see, we respond to every single one of them. Well, I respond to every single one of them <laughs> because it usually it's, it's something that just like, it didn't work right with their specific bike setup or, um, they had some, you know, misunderstanding of what they were getting or whatever, like, you know, occasionally there are some actual problems and it's good that I know about it so that I can fix it. Cause if I don't know, then I can't do anything about it. Um, and it helps us make a better product. It helps us write better instructions. Um, that was something early on where I was like, everybody knows what a GoPro mount is. Like it's pretty ubiquitous. Everybody's heard of GoPro. Everybody's seen one on their helmet. And then I realized as we started talking to customers like, wow, there is a large percentage of mountain bikers 
who have no idea what the word GoPro means. And um, that's, that's surprising to me because I've seen it so much over the years. Sorry, dude. They are back. It's all right. Um, yeah, suffice to say, um, like I can, I can learn from the reviews, the negative reviews, way more than I can from the positive. So we don't, we don't clean off like the negative reviews. We leave them up there and we respond if there's an issue that we've either addressed or not. And we explain, oh, this is just the way it is, or is it not right for you? Or this is a problem that's fixable and it shouldn't happen or whatever. Like we, we address it. So we leave them up there because we want it to be real. We don't want you to look and say, oh, five stars must be perfect. Nothing's ever wrong with that because that's not the way reality works. And you'll see that when you ask for 4,000 reviews on, on your uh, Facebook page is you get varied responses from people. And that's what, what is real, not just forced. Oh, I use this because I'm a professional athlete. And they paid me money to use it. Here you go. Yeah. Yep. I, I would say, uh, for lack of a better term, you have, and I don't even know if this is the right term, like a huge grassroots following, right? Like the, the users of this product, pro, I, I know I speak for myself and I speak from everyone else that I know who has it um, in the mountain biking community. And I know there's diehard people. I can probably pull up a post right now and show you I know, you know, there's like three or four people in the group that I know, all right, this dude uses outbound because every light post that is seen, <laughs> he's like doubling down on it. And like, yeah. that's, uh, I don't know, R real everyday users is worth tenfold. Yeah. You might be able to get a bunch of business if Richie Rude came out and was like, outbound lighting's yeah. amazing. Right. Um, yeah. But when you hear it from like, you know, normal people who are using it every day, not that Richie Root's not a normal person. Um, I shouldn't say that. I don't know him. Yeah. Um, like <laughs> uh, he shreds though. I'll say that. Um, he's, he's a big dude. He is huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that it, yeah, it's I mean, just awesome. It, it really is. Yeah, it's, And that's more of the vibe we're trying to strike, right? It's, if we were trying to build this company to be as valuable as possible so we could sell it off to Specialized in three years, we probably wouldn't be taking this angle. We'd be yep. pushing marketing heavily. And I'm sure there's a bunch of people, you know, people are listening to this that are outbound customers. They probably get inundated with Facebook ads and shit all the time. Um, we do push stuff on there. When I say like pushing marketing, like the ads you're going to see are like, a hastily improvised 30 second video of me at the end of Bentonville bike fest with holding the GoPro in my face. And, um, you know, like, uh, Andy, our production manager, he, uh, put together this, this, uh, silly ad. That's just, a, it's a, it's a joke, but it's, it's funny and well done where it's just him talking to himself. Um, and, uh, he and Matt went and shot that during lunch one day. And it's like, we're not, we're not paying $10,000 for shredded content and stuff. Like if we're just doing what we can on that side and then um, we're growing slower because of it. And that's fine because we're still surviving. Like we're not, we're not trying to make, you know, millions and get out. Like I, I want to be at this company doing this 10 years from now and, and be happy doing it. And 
So growing slowly and, you know, really actually living the grassroots side of it, you know, being part of that and, and not being all up in the, the corporate sponsorship, professional racer side, they, you know, it's important to us. So that's, that's what you'll see more of. There's, there's something to really be said about slow, slower growth in business as well. Um, growing pain sucked. I work for a construction company. We grew tenfold over the last six years and growing pains. Like it just, we've, we've dialed it in really good in the last year or two, but the years before that, it, it's like, we're just chasing our tails and you're just, you know, you're kind of two steps behind and it's just, yeah, it's not me. It's not sustainable. It, it, it makes life miserable to be totally honest. Well, at a certain point you can, you can outkick your coverage too. And if you like that, that was, that was a big concern for us that we, we learned a couple of lessons. Like when we, we launched hangover helmet light, we, we did a pre-order for that. And we said, all right, three months from now, it's going to ship. And two and a half months, we got the first production run of, of parts for, for various things. And there were issues with every single part. Once we scaled up the volume and you're like, we can't ship this. We got to make changes now. It's so that three months stretched to six months. And so we're getting emails, rightfully so, asking us, where the f*** are our lights? Because you said it would be this date. Now it's not. And that was really stressful. And that could have, we, we avoided a, a big issue there. So for now for everything going forward, we don't do pre-orders for anything. We we only launch when we're ready to actually ship a product. When we have it in hand, you know, the first thousand assembled and tested, ready to go. Because we don't, we don't want to harpoon our own brand where we, you know, put all this work into the launch and then can't deliver. And right now we're three to four weeks behind on, on back orders and it sucks for everybody. These customers aren't getting stuff in like right now. It's, you know, people wanting stuff for Christmas and we're going to, be making a big push, but there's still going to be a bunch of people that aren't going to get their stuff for Christmas, which we told them ahead of time, but still, you know, they're, they're buying, hoping that we'll beat our estimations and, yep. you know, we just can't, can't pull a rabbit out of a hat all the time. So we, you know, like you said, when you're growing too fast and you can't keep up, it's not just bad for you because you're getting stretched too thin. It's bad for your brand and your customers too. And if you do that too fast, you'll submarine your brand overnight. Yep. And, we are definitely not in that game. Like we are, we're comfortable right now. We're dumping all of our money from like profits this year back into new product development because we still, we've got a new road light coming out. Um, we've got other new products that we want to expand or to fill out the portfolio for all biking disciplines. And until we have that, like that's where our money's going. Yep. That's what we're trying to do is grow sustainably um, so that it, it lasts. This isn't, you know, a cash grab venture, so to speak. So um, I'll, I'll ask a question that's affecting everyone, everyone right now, supply chain issues, um, that, that type of stuff due to COVID and everything that's going on. Have you guys been dealing with that? Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's uh, I mean, I don't know of any industry that's really been exempt from that, but electronics in particular, I mean, you read, stories about like Ford parking 40,000 F-150s in a parking lot in Detroit because they're missing like two 
integrated controller chips that they can't get. Um, and we've been lucky because um, we, we've definitely had issues. I'll, I'll say that we've been better off than a lot of our competitors because of two things. One, we're small. Two, we're assembling everything in Chicago. So instead of waiting for all the parts to get together somewhere in Asia and then get drop shipped as this heavy full product in a shipping container on a boat, that's going to get stuck in a canal somewhere and not show up for six months. And then sideways. <laughs> yeah. Gets, it finally made it out. I think this is uh, it finally cleared. So um, all that toilet paper is going to show up all at once now, but um yeah, like we we aren't big enough to require an entire shipping container full of stuff. And because we're assembling lights here, we can we can be faster reacting to that here. Because right? we do have some stuff coming from overseas. And then all of our electronics are done in Arizona, which is also great because I can fly down there and help them with production. And like I've done that four times in the past two months. I've gone down there for a couple of days to just like spend 20 hours in a day, just helping them crank through stuff to get boards out. So we can have circuit board assemblies to assemble lights. I couldn't do that if it was in Asia. Um, so that, that has helped a lot with us just staying on top of things. But like I spent two hours before we got on the phone or got on this um, zoom call tonight, just trying to source alternate parts for certain things like, uh, individual transistors or voltage regulators or right now the, the lithium ion USB charging uh, negotiating protocol chips. Like there's not many available despite every product in the world being USB rechargeable now. And they're all just different enough. And the protocol is just this bottomless swamp of chaos. So this part that used to cost us $2 a piece and we had in full supply now there's only 4,000 of them left in the world and they're charging us $11 a piece for them. Um, and we're trying to decide, okay, can we tell them the off or do we not have any other alternatives? So I'm trying to figure out what other chips have the same footprint, same pinout, similar performance that we can drop in and have it work and not be shortchanging the customer. Or can we do a board spin with a small redesign to make this component work that's available? There's just a lot of like every week there's some gymnastics to try to get some part that's going to hold up the entire shipment. Um, so it's been, it's been rough, but we're not unique in that regard. Wow. Yeah. So be, you're dealing with the same thing everyone's dealing with. And it, uh, I mean, that just sounds so stressful. I don't know how you do it. We dealt with something similar over the summer um, as far as, you know, my company with a labor shortage. Um, we don't really have any, we do demolition. So we, you know, we demolish existing things instead of, you know, putting in place new items. So right. our, our main commodity, so to speak, is, is labor, right? To do that. And we could not hire people. We turned away, I don't know, three quarters of a million dollars worth of work over a month or two. Um, wow. We couldn't staff it. And, it, and it, and it goes back to, you know, exactly what you're talking about. It's, you know, our brand and our company name. I'd much rather tell someone, Hey, I'm sorry. Like we can't do this job. Um, apologize upfront, find someone else to do it. We just can't staff it. Then, 
take it and then fall down for them and four other or 10 other clients. Right. Cause now we're robbing. Exactly. Paul. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Times is very unique times to say the least. Yeah. And so we're, our, our approach on that side of like the labor side of things, we don't need a ton of employees. Um, so right now it's just three of us. It's me, Matt, the, uh, the founder of the company and uh, Andy, who's our production manager. And um, it's, uh, so we don't need 50 employees to you know, handle a surge and everything like that. Um, but we're also investing heavily in automation for our assembly. And so we're designing our, our lights going forward um, well, until this point, but we're improving them going forward to assemble faster and more easily. And the reason for that is um, because it also benefits with fewer parts and making things simpler so they're more reliable. But mainly, if we can assemble it faster, then we can keep up with demand better. We can scale better. So we're not going to fall down when you know demand spikes in peak season. Um, and it reduces costs. So we, you know, our, while we're getting gouged on you know, these, these individual electrical components that they're charging us triple for, we can kind of make up for some of that by, by increasing our manufacturing efficiency. And that allows us to have fewer people to assemble. So we can have less labor, less overall cost. And the people we do have, we can pay, you know, better to support them, you know, have health insurance and, and things like that, and, uh, you know, strong living wages and all that, because, we're, we're definitely in the mindset right now. If we can't, you know, we're, we're not trying to hire the cheapest person available to screw some lights together. We're, we're trying to make a company where everyone here is happy and supported and, and healthy. And if we can't afford to pay people, then we shouldn't hire them. Um, so big part of that for us is, is automation. You know, if we can uh, get a, a dispensing gantry robot where we can have, you know, 50 shells set up to dispense thermal grease on them automatically. Not only is that a higher quality product because it's the same volume of thermal grease and the same pattern on every one, but it's also faster and enables, you know, Andy goes, gets that set up while he then goes and packs up some lights for orders going out that day. Um, so it's worth the investment for us right now. It's also why we're not taking home a whole lot of money because we're, we're, uh, we're dumping that back in, not just to the new products, but also the manufacturing side of it. And that's something we probably wouldn't have been forced into. It's not that we're forced into it. We're, we're being pretty um, aggressive with it, but um, it's something that wouldn't have been um, as important if it weren't for, you know, the supply chain issues and the, the labor crises right now that, that pretty much every industry is facing. You know, like I said, we're not unique in that regard. You're having the same issues, but in a different way. Like everybody's dealing with it. It's just how you deal with it. We're we're trying to do what we think is best for the longevity of the company. I I can tell you guys. I mean, I can tell you're an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's very well thought out, uh, and and it speaks to what you're trying to build and and how you're trying to build it. Um, and you know you you're successful. You guys, you guys have been successful because of it. And that's awesome. Honestly, it's cool to actually hear it from you and talk about it. I've learned a ton that I didn't know about the company, you know, prior to right now. It's, it's cool to hear. Um, yeah, that's, 
that's great, man. And that's and actually why I'm happy to sit here and shoot the shit. Like, like I said, it's not, you didn't ask me to put together a four hour presentation with a bunch of previous work. We're just showing up and talking. And um, honestly, it's good to, like, I, I feel like there are some customers that reach out to us thinking that we're like this large corporate organization with an engineering team and a customer service team and all this. And it's like, no, it's just, it's just us. Like <laughs> you know, we're just a small company. We're just trying to figure it out day by day. And um, yeah, we, we try to do things very methodically, but um, you know, we're also, we're also small and growing quickly and wearing many hats. So I'm um, not inherently say a marketing guy. Um, I had never done customer service directly before uh, this job. You know, I worked as a camp counselor at the YMCA. That's, I guess, as close as I got. Um, and uh, it's we're all just trying to figure it out. Like Matt, uh, the founder of the company, he's an optical design engineer. So all of the optics and, um, and basically all the mechanical design for the products uh, he does. I help with some of the mechanicals, but I prim- primarily do the electronics. Um, but he also... Uh, does the entire website. He does all of our e-commerce, all of our um, SEO and um, uh, ad spend and everything like that. And he just figures that out. Uh, he does a lot of our, uh, almost all of our supply chain management with uh, various vendors for injection molding and things like that. And like he just figures it out. Like if he wasn't capable enough on those sides, like we would have to have somebody to manage the website and the marketing and things, man, we would not be doing as well as we are now because we can't afford to have like six different people to do six individual jobs. Like we just have to, um, have to kind of figure it out. And that's, that's part of why I wanted to work with Matt in the first place, because he's, he's not just a random engineer. He, he functions on multiple different levels that, I am, you know, I haven't worked with a whole lot of people like that in various industries. You know, I'm, you've got like your, your sales manager, you've got your mechanical engineer and they work within that box, but not outside of it. And they don't speak the language of other people. And, you know, he knows how to work with vendors so that we're not getting gouged on pricing so that we're getting decent service and that we're getting good quality controls. And um, it's, yeah, it's been really, uh, it's been a challenge, but it's also been really great working with him in particular. He sounds like an awesome dude. I actually think I saw somebody tag him. Uh, I don't know who it was. It was, I believe it was in our group and they were like, yeah. Um, they tagged Matt and was like, yeah, outbound Matt and outbound lighting are awesome. I know him, something, this and that. It, and then I looked him up a little bit and the, it, he sounds like a, a really cool dude. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say this. He is, and we have a very <laughs> similar sense of humor. Um, and so we, but uh, I had mentioned this to you before we started recording, we, he and I hadn't met or talked on the phone. Like I hadn't heard his voice before um, for 11 months um, when we first started working and until we, we'd first met. And uh, he had recorded early on when he had first started the company, he recorded some some videos of him on a bike in the woods, you know, he was riding around and talking about the beam pattern and stuff. And I was like, yeah, but you know, those videos are good. Um, they really show what you're trying to get across, but you got to get somebody else to do the voiceover. And he was like, Hey, that's me. And, um, I didn't realize that. And, uh, <laughs> later found out, uh, that he's actually deaf. Uh, so 
He's, he's been deaf since he was like three, something like that. So he can hear, but he's got hearing aids. And when he turns off his hearing aids, he can't hear. Get out of here. Yeah. And uh, so that's also part of why he doesn't talk on the phone a lot. It's because why? When you can type it out. And we were just typing back and forth messages all day, every day. Um, and so, yeah, it's he, he actually, uh, he and I have very different personalities. I tend to be a little more extroverted and, um, I'm a very socially dependent person. I like to be around people all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of likes being the, uh, the, the wizard behind the curtain that just makes things happen. Um, so I came in and I was like, you know, I don't necessarily need to be the face of the company, but it seems like you don't want to be. Um, and he was like, yeah, no, you go ahead. <laughs> That'll be fine. Um, so it's, it's not that he doesn't want, uh, you know, he, he deserves a lot of credit that he doesn't get because he's not out in the forefront talking about himself or showing his face. And it's because he's just good at making happen in the background. It, um, yeah, it's, it, he's a pretty, pretty unique personality in that regard. Interesting. So, um, I, I actually, you know, obviously before this, um, last over the last few weeks or whatever i've been perusing the website you know the about us and kind of read up read up on you guys and um i like doing that before i talk to people and i notice on the site you were labeled as tom danger place and i find that intriguing and would love to know the story behind that yeah uh that was so nobody, nobody calls me that outside of Canada. Um, so uh, it was a high school, high school nickname um, that was, you know, just a few people used, but not really. It was from, uh, we watched the Naked Gun movies, Buzz and Nielsen. Yep. Um, yeah. So I think it was, it was either two and a half or 33 and a third, um, where uh, he said, Frank, but you might end up dead. And he said, you might end up dead as my middle name. Um, <laughs> and that ended up, we were watching that and it got into this other discussion. And um, I spent a lot of time in the emergency room, basically my entire life, but especially as a kid. Um, you know, I've gotten stitches in my face seven different times, now nine times, but seven before I was 15, uh, five in the same spot in my chin, broken both arms and had like I've just, you know, I get injured a lot. Um, and then I started working, uh, I went and rode, uh, raced BC bike race back in 2014. Um, and after like day two of the race is like all my friends are going to bed and, you know, trying to prepare for the next day, but they're going to sleep at 9 PM and it doesn't get dark till like 10 30 that far North in the middle of summer. So I just brought some beer over to the crew and said, Hey, we should be friends and ended up, staying up till two drinking with the crew every night and um, realized that racing is dumb and I should just go, go back to work crew every summer. Uh, so <laughs> I came on to work bag team and uh, when I was managing the bag team, everybody gets a, the, all the managers get a radio to communicate throughout the day. Cause it's just this traveling circus of like 200 staff and volunteers running around to support 600 racers moving site to site every day. And it's, it's organized chaos. It's, a miracle gets pulled off as well as it does. It's, it's an amazing event. And um, there are four Toms. There were managers on crew, popular name these days, it seems. Um, 
So we all had to go by nicknames. Otherwise, it just got way too confusing. So everyone that I know in Canada now is all through BC Bike Race, and they all just call me Danger because that's all they call me during race week. Um, but basically nobody in the U.S. calls me that. <laughs> I like it. That's a great story. <laughs> so you obviously ride mountain bikes, and you work for Outbound Lighting. And I have to ask a question. Do you prefer, and, and you can be honest, right? <laughs> Do you prefer riding at night or during the day? Oh, that is a good, hard-hitting question uh, for the uh, night riding guy. Um, you know, uh, I love all riding equally. No. Um, <laughs> I, that was good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, I actually really like night riding a lot in certain places, um, more than others. Um, you know, like, uh, here in Olympia, there's, there's not and, and in Arizona in the desert, like there aren't natural predators. It's like, I can go out by myself in the middle of nowhere and I'm not worried about a damn thing. I'm not worried about like a grizzly coming up on me or anything like that. Um, and it's, it's nice. Cause I can just go out whenever I want, get the ride that I want in and, um, you know, feel safe and comfortable. And I'm also really comfortable riding at night because I've been doing it for so long and I spend so much time analyzing, you know, my experience riding at night that I'm not worried about, you know, misreading the trail and crashing and hurting myself. Like I know, I know how to ride within my limits in those scenarios. And um, so I really like riding at night in those, those places, but honestly, like riding the day is, is different. Um, and I think that in general, I like, God, it's so hard to answer that question because I keep thinking, yeah, I actually like riding the day more. But the one thing about night that is, that is great is that the lighting is always consistent. Like your lights are mounted on your head and your bike. They're never like in, during the day, if you go at 8 a.m. or noon or 6 p.m., depending on what direction the trail is pointing, and the type of trees you got, like you could get this, like you're passing through the trees and the sun's coming in and hitting you in the eye and it's like a strobe effect or the sun's coming straight at you and it's blinding or it's behind you. And so you're not getting any shadows. So the trail looks flat and like your lighting can change a lot during the day. Whereas at night, you know, maybe you can't see as well as you can with just bright sunlight everywhere, but I can see plenty good with with the right light setup and it's always the same lighting. So every trail looks like I know how to read it the same way. Um, and that's, that's kind of nice. I think so. Um, there's my non answer of that question. <laughs> that, that was a great non answer. Uh, accepted. <laughs> um, to be totally honest, I've never thought of it that way. And, and when you just said it, you're absolutely right. Cause I was riding the other day and a lot of the trails I was riding were it, it was kind of like mid afternoon and the sun was on its way down and the direction kind of on the second half of my ride to get home, the sun was beaming right at me for pretty much the whole ride. And I was in thick, you know, thickly wooded area. So I was getting those flashes, you know, yeah. um, yep. from trees and stuff. And, and you're right. Like at night that doesn't happen. You, you have your lights and, and it's consistent that, wow, good answer. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think that's, that's something that a lot of people don't think about because 
you know, it's not their job to think about it. Um, <laughs> they just want to get on their bike and, and go. And so they're not, they're not really analyzing how they're perceiving the terrain. But um, one thing I'll say just in general for night riding setups, because this comes up a lot too, is if people ask, like, do you prefer to run a helmet light or a bar light or both and why? And um, a lot of people think, well, if I'm going to have one, it needs to be the helmet because it's always pointed where I'm looking. And that's, that's more important. You know, if I turn the bars just a little bit and I lose the trail, then what good is that light? And I, I have two responses. One, your handlebar light isn't very good if that's the problem. So you need to get ours. Um, mm-hmm. yep. More, more importantly, they serve very different purposes. And yes, the helmet lights always pointed where you're looking, where your head is pointing, but it's, the light is always above your eye line. So it doesn't matter what brand of light, like ours do this too. doesn't matter what brand, what beam pattern, what intensity, the helmet light is going to make every trail look flat, which, you know, up in Northeast where you are, you get a lot of chunky terrain that, you know, if, if you see a dirt trail and this big rock sticking out of it, if, the, if you only have a helmet light, it's casting a shadow behind the rock that you can't see. So you can't, you don't perceive that rock as being three-dimensional as well as when you have a bar light because a bar light is casting a shadow out from the rock and you're looking down into it. So if you run just a bar light versus just a helmet light, the bar light will make everything look three-dimensional on the trail and it makes it more realistic so you can see it out of your periphery a lot more easily and, and process it when you're moving really fast. Instead of having to think, is that rock sticking up? Is it a foot tall? Is it six inches tall? Can I just roll it? Like, it's a lot easier to perceive what's happening when you have a bar light. Um, But then there's also plenty of trails where you might be coming up on a big drop or um, have like a very rolly, like pump track type of terrain. And for that, where your bike's pitching up and down constantly, a helmet light really helps to even that out. So you can be looking down the other side of the feature mm-hmm. uh, and see off that drop. And so they're both really important and they, they serve very different purposes because of where they're mounted, which is why also why we get a lot of questions like, Oh, can I mount the Evo or handlebar light on the helmet? Like you can, and well, we, we have an adapter coming out for that, but you will be able to, but we don't, encourage it and we didn't design it that way for that reason because you don't need this big wide uh, breadth of light on your helmet because then the light has to be higher power to cover a larger area which means a larger battery and it's heavier on your neck and you feel it on your helmet that's none of that's optimized for the applications the helmet light is lower power because it's a narrower beam covering a smaller section of the trail because you don't need as much battery to get the same runtime you can keep it lighter weight so it's less neck strain your helmet doesn't flop around as much and then the bar light can be heavier because you don't feel that nearly as much on your bars as you do on your head and then you can have more battery power to have more power covering a larger swath of terrain so you get a very wide light so when you turn the bars the beam doesn't just move off the trail you don't lose the trail Um, and so that's that's how we ended up designing our lights is because of a specific mounting location, uh, not just trying to make the brightest lights out there. And I think that's that's what gets me started thinking about how you perceive the trail and what it looks like is, is because we're constantly looking at it from that angle. Wow, uh, <laughs> that was awesome! <laughs> like, that was um, a lot in a very short period of time, but that's 
that's one. I mean, I, if you want to talk for another two hours about that, we can, but I think that's probably enough detail for most people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's really eye opening. Um, it's, that was pretty cool to hear you say all that, honestly. Um, again, you know, I'm, I'm a layman when it comes to lighting, right? <laughs> I strap on lights and I ride and, and to hear all that makes, you know, without thinking, I, I would have never thought about that before. Right. Um, to hear the explanation of the difference between bar and, and all I've ever heard is like, you should have one on your bars and you should have one on your head. Right. Um, it's the best way, but to hear that, like why is, is really cool actually. And hopefully it helps like when you're out there, you can play around, like turn off your helmet light, then turn off your bar light and just have the helmet on and just see what the difference is like, because you know, like, you know, back, back to your crowdsourcing opinions from, from the internet, like a lot of people will, um, you know, they'll get something and they'll ride it and they think it's the best ever. And because it's the only data point they have, um, like, I don't, I have not ridden every bike in the industry. I've ridden the Fuel EX. My girlfriend's got one and she loves it. It's a solid bike. Um, but I've only ridden it once. I don't really know. And, uh, but I've got a Slayer. And I've got that for Ben Druid. I love those bikes. Those are the best bikes ever. Well, yep. there might be a better bike out there. I just don't know because I haven't tried. And with stuff like lights, people just turn on everything because they want to focus on the bike and not the lights. They don't nerd out on the equipment side like that. Um, so doing, doing the science experiment to kind of just see how it affects you is you know maybe not the thing you're going out there to do on a typical night ride, but it might help you to figure out what you personally like, you know, and, uh, what's better for your terrain because like in the desert in Arizona, I ran just a bar light, no problem all the time, just the Evo and was totally happy with that. Could ride full speed and, and not have any issues here in Olympia, the trails uh, pitch up and down a lot more. There's a lot more G outs and berms and stuff. Um, and like Bentonville, Arkansas is basically like a 10 mile long pump track for the trails around town. And it's the only place I've turned off my bar light entirely and just run with the helmet light because it's a pretty buff, smooth trail, but it was so up and down and up and down pumping that like the bar light got annoying to me. So there's no one perfect setup for everything and playing with that on your terrain, uh, you know, the stuff that you ride at night on a regular basis can help you figure out what's most important for you and not just take my word for it, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely gonna. I'm definitely gonna try that. And and with that said, you should get both the the Evo and the Hangover, right? Everyone. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, like I said, they serve different purposes. If I'm gonna be trying to ride fast or new terrain or or just in general, yeah, I'm gonna turn both of them on. Uh, yep. I'm gonna have both. Plus, honestly, like not that we make an unreliable product, but shit happens in the woods. And if you uh, you know, if you're, if you're on a 20 mile ride and 10 miles in, you snap off your derailleur, you can still roll out, but you can't pedal. That's going to suck. If you get into a ride at night and you have one light and you crash and you break it, you don't have any light anymore. Oh yeah. <laughs> you're holding your cell phone <laughs> to get you out of the woods or something like that. Like it's always good to have a backup, particularly for mountain biking because people find creative ways to break things. And, um, I don't, I like being stuck in the dark. 
No, in the middle of the woods. No, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) You guys have like cougars or rattlesnakes or anything up in the Northeast? I haven't ridden much up there. So um, we have bobcats. Um, They're they're small, right? Um, No, I don't think there's cougars up here. We have black bears uh, in in southeastern Massachusetts. They're kind of few and far between. Um, there was some sightings. Everyone was tracking this this bear. Uh, it was all over all the mountain bike pages, and they literally tracked it. Like just sightings. Everyone was posting about it over like three or four towns, which was pretty cool to see. Um, there are rattlesnakes actually in in the trail network that's right by my house. It's like, there's a big conservation thing. We have a guy, everyone calls him the snake guy. Like if, there's not many new trails cause it's, it's like an urban historic park and it's huge. Um, they call it an urban park or whatever you want to call it, but it, it's massive and it's, it's the woods, but it yeah. was built to serve like, you know, I'm 20 minutes outside of Boston. So it was kind of built for that reason, but there's, there's like a snake guy that like protects the rattlesnakes and there's timber rattlers. Like, uh, um, I think it was three ish months ago. Um, a nurse was like getting into her car, like on the edge of the blue Hills and caught a video of like a five foot rattlesnake. Um, yeah. So yeah. So there's all, there's, there's definitely coyotes and, and all kinds of shit around. Um, nothing that's too crazy or concerning, like, like a grizzly bear that, you know yeah but but even the black bears right like they tend to not care so much like even if you see them they'll just walk away like they're not looking to hunt you or anything like that yeah exactly unless you know unless there's cubs around or something then they might get crazy but i'm honestly more afraid of deer than anything like i've almost got hit by deer (laughs) riding (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and they're not light as it turns out they can do some damage <laughs> yeah yeah uh a, a buddy of mine uh the owner of denim bike over a couple towns over uh he was telling you about 10 15 years ago he was riding he broke his chain and this buck came up on him and just was like stomping and rutting and like basically wanted to challenge him to a duel and he had oh. to like take his bike and like yell at it and it, it didn't charge him or anything but uh, I wouldn't want to be in that situation. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone who comes on the podcast, we, we ask kind of like the big question at the end. And uh, it, it's not that this is the end. It usually turns into a bunch more talking, but it's, it's a very vague question. Um, can be answered in a thousand ways. And, and that's like, why do you ride? Why does Tom place ride mountain bikes? Okay. Um, I, I ride for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, I'll say that the, the primary reason I ride is because of the uh, thing I touched on earlier, where it's a sport where I, I feel like I can always learn something new and I can always progress. So it just never gets boring to me. Um, and I, I really like that, the technical side of it. Like I'm, I'm not the fittest guy on earth and I never intend to be, I don't have the discipline or the desire to, to do that. Um, and so I'm not trying to go out there and compete in like running races where, you know, it's really just about fitness and training to get to that point. For me, it's like, I'm, I want to go out 
and try to learn a new skill, like to be able to do something that is that's exciting and fun. And that, that that side of mountain biking is really what keeps me coming back. But I'm also a very socially dependent person and I just love the community side of, of mountain biking. Like it doesn't exist. You know, I used to play pickup basketball all the time through college and, and high school. And that was, I had a good group for that, but it's still not the same. It doesn't have the same vibe that mountain biking does where, you know, like you don't have to drink beer to mountain bike, but people hanging out in the parking lot, drinking, cooking, whatever, like it's, it's pretty ubiquitous. Like that's, that's what mountain bikers do after rides. And it's, yes, sir. It's great. Um, I just, I love having that kind of family atmosphere and um, just being around the, the people that I love doing the thing that I love. So those are the two things that, that really keep me going. But, you know, then there's, you know, it's, I used to work on cars, I love cars. I'm a mechanical engineer. Cars are expensive and smelly and they take up a ton of space and you have to insure them. And um, I realized that I can satisfy that side of my, my tinkering with bikes and um, be, you know, it's still not, you saw the wall, it's not inexpensive. It costs money, but for all those bikes on the wall, that's like one new car um, or like a project car and, and motor parts and stuff. And I'm not burning gas, I'm burning calories. Like it's just, there just aren't a lot of bad things from it. You know, there's not a downside. Like I used to, I used to wakeboard a lot and that was cool when I, had friends who had boats, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you got to gas up this truck. That's got to tow this heavy boat. And then you put ballast in it and then uh, to weigh it down further to give you more weight. And it just burns more gas. And only one person can be wakeboarding while everybody else sits in the boat or drives. And it's like, man, this is a work for something that I just, it just didn't seem worth it. So I eventually just stopped doing that entirely and, and biking is, uh, you know, not so, um, not such a low barrier to entry as running where you can just get a pair of shoes and go. Yep. Um, but it's kind of in between where it satisfies all my needs and, um, it's it just, it hits all the right points. And you can do it forever. Like I know people run forever, but I feel like running has a bigger toll on your body. Um, I know a guy yeah. who's almost 80 that's still riding. Like he, I think within the last few years, he got an e-bike and he's like, he's basically like the e-bike doesn't, you know, all it does is make me ride. Like I used to ride when I was 50 or 60. And I was like, this dude's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, man. Yeah. That's, that that is the, I think the really positive side of e-bikes is when they're used properly, you know, that's, we don't need to start a whole talk topic about e-bikes because that can get worse than politics these days but um seeing people who wouldn't otherwise be able to do what they're they're doing and do it safely and and still enjoy it the same way like it's it's game changing and it's awesome to to have that option you know for people who are like uh, recovering from cancer and you know don't have the ability to do it anymore but they can on an e-bike that's awesome get an e-bike get out there Absolutely. I I 100% agree. And, you know, I may or may not have fell into the whole e-bike bashing thing a few times. And um, that movie uh, on while it was on Netflix for a while, Accomplice, did you did you see that? I don't think so. No. 
it's a great mountain biking movie, but there's a segment. And again, uh, I probably should know the dude's name, but he was like a pro mountain biker and got seriously injured and basically paralyzed was in a wheelchair and like he can ride now because he can ride an e-bike and he can keep up with his buddies and stuff. You know, he's in a wheelchair and he gets out of a van and then jumps on a e-bike and, and can shred. It's, yeah, it changed my whole perspective on it because I, I fell in the whole like you said it's worse than politics the whole back and forth like eat bikes blah 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 but like and then the other the, the other thing is you know the, the guy I'm talking about who's in his 70s and s- still riding and, and you know leading rides and and it's not to say that he, he still rides you know um, I'm going to call it to be funny an analog bike right <laughs> like right <laughs> Like he still rides those, but he has an e-bike and when he goes on group rides, he keeps up with everyone. And it's just really cool to see. Yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's always ways it's, it's a weapon. It's a matter of how you use it. You can use it to uh, hurt people or not. And uh, yeah, I I don't know. I'm, I haven't gotten an e-bike yet and I'm still pushing it off, but I definitely see their value and they're fun as shit. Yeah, I've written a few demos and I, I was just like, this is amazing. Like uh, these flat X tri- XC trails that I'm riding on feel like I'm going slightly downhill and this is really fun. Yeah, man. Honestly, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a super busy guy. Um, seriously, thank you. This was great. We'll get this thing all edited up. Um, I know we had a couple drops, so hopefully it's not too bad. And shout out for like, the idea to turn off the video because that seemed to help a ton. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Again. Yeah. No, that shit happens. This is the, the new Zoom world we're living in. Right? <laughs> exactly. Shout out any social media um, platforms you're on, outbound lighting, all of that stuff. Any plugs you may have, like feel free to to plug all of that. We'll throw it when we start posting this on various uh, Facebook sites and kind of start putting it out there. We'll make sure to include all those links and whatnot. Um, But yeah, plug anything you want right now. I really honestly don't have a lot to plug. You know, we're on, we're on the Instagrams and the Facebooks, just uh, outbound lighting. Um, Pretty easy to find us. Um, Not a lot of fake accounts popping up with our name yet not that big um yeah Ellen. if you're i guess out in the northeast you got a lot of northeast listeners we we sponsored a couple night races with uh, the maxis eastern states cup um this year and we're going to do it again in may of next year out at uh, powder ridge in connecticut nice Um, and so i think uh, they got some new sponsorship coming for next year but um, I don't know if they've announced yet, but we'll still be out there. So the Eastern States cup, if you're in that area, we're doing a night enduro, which that time of year, I think ends up having three stages during the day and then three stages at night. Um, and it's super freaking cool. It's a great format because everybody ends up at the same spot after every stage. So if anything happens, we get them fixed up and send them back out. So you don't you know ruin your race because of it, but it's, it's cool seeing like, there's all these groms that come out for those races, you know, little uh, middle schoolers and stuff with their parents and all the middle schoolers will get together after the race and they start, you know, pulling out their timesheets and, you know, seeing who was faster than the other kid. And it's really cool seeing the ones that like got their ass kicked during the day and then won all the night stages. Um, 
And it's, it's cool seeing like their setup differences and just, it, it's, it's a fun event. Um, and if you're looking to get into more night riding, it's a pretty cool one to go get your feet wet and, um, have a pretty, pretty relaxed vibe to it too. You, know, you got good heckle zones and everything. It's, it's a good time. Are you going to be out this year for that? I will be. Um, this past year I was there for both of them with our, with our van. I will not be driving the van out there this year because it is literally 46 hours of driving one way to get there. Um, and all of our other events that time of year are on the West coast. So I'll yep. be flying out. We'll have a tent. We'll have our demo fleet and support it. And, um, you know, I tend to carry like a big box of random parts from other companies, lights, you know, night rider, light in motion, exposure, glow worm, all them. And, um, I just bring those to the race so that if somebody shows up like, Hey, I've got my bomb trigger light, but I don't have a mount for it. It's like, Oh, well, I've got a couple mounts laying around. Just take this for the race. Um, just to solve problems. Cause that's the, just the best way to, to go at those events. I'd rather be there to to help make sure everybody has a chance to ride, not to try to sell as many lights as possible. Um, so we'll, we'll be there for support and um, I'll be awake until the last racers finish. That dude, that's awesome. Um, that's Connecticut's. I mean, it's the next state over from us. So I'll, I'll make it a point to try and get over there. I'd love to meet you in person. Um, yeah. our, our actually the last guest we had on Willem Cooper, he he's a mountain biking coach. He's a guy I was telling you about. I took some lessons with, yeah, he's got a, um, a, a youth, um, enduro team or development team. And I would venture to guess if, you know, if it's in, like you said, it's an Eastern States cup enduro race. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those kids were, you know, guys that train with him and, and ride with him. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely, I'll, uh, I'll throw it in the calendar and, and get tickets and, and, try to be over there. I'd love to meet you and, and, you know, open offer. If you're, if you're ever in, you know, Massachusetts, New England area, feel you, you have my cell number, feel free to hit me up. Would love to ride with you and show you around. For sure, man. Yeah, that'd be great. Love to see some trails in that area. I've only ridden in Connecticut um, for that race now for the whole New England area. I've ridden in New York or, or Massachusetts or anything. So plenty for me to see. Yeah. Open invitation. We got a ton of group rides always going, you know, evening rides, day rides, all, all kinds of group rides happening. So, Hell yeah, man. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This has been fun. All right, Tom. I, uh, again, really appreciate it and uh, looking forward to actually meeting you. I'll make it a point to, to schedule to get down there. But if I don't have anything going on, come pop in. Yeah, man. Sounds great. All right, buddy. All right. We'll talk again soon. All right. Stay in touch. 